from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Tanya Nordley on June 1st, 2020. Tanya is a family physician and an assistant clinical professor in family medicine at the University of Alberta. For over 20 years, she's been treating patients afflicted by chronic pain, using diet change as one way of ameliorating that condition. In her practice, she treats addiction as well and describes her unique ability to address it. She describes the intersection of pain and addiction in the interview. I started the interview by asking Tanya where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Alberta, in Canada, and my first years were spent in a small community that current population is five mm-hmm. called Tuatna, Alberta. We lived on a small farm and Tuatna, to my understanding, means a river which divides the hills. I have an old picture of me sitting in a burnt out bathtub. We had an outdoor bathtub that someone had donated to our family when their caravan had caught fire. I was burnt blonde by the prairie sun and red and still love the prairies. It was burnt right into me. So I would say that religion then was the beauty of nature, seeing in every created thing a sign of the creator, no formal religion there. And at that time, I very few memories because I was so young, but I remembered getting up in the night and feeling mice running over my feet. And my mother described this as the happiest time in uh, her life. We were, uh, as many people, very poor, had no running water, yet we were close to the land and had lots of time with each other. I remember that time especially when I hear a quote of uh, Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, who said that the city is the home of the body and the country is the home of the soul. So the great privilege of spending time in the home of the soul. When I was still a young child, my father developed great difficulties with gambling and alcohol. And my mother took uh, my brother and I to England to live with our grandparents who were lovely people. They had both had very strict religious upbringings. My grandmother in an orphanage and my grandfather living with his grandparents where Sundays were for reading the Bible only, even as small children, no playing. It was only for reading the Bible or going to church. And both had childhoods that were to some degree love-starved and lonely. And they were very sympathetic to and kind to children as a result. They both encouraged us that serving one's country was very important and we could do that through any honest work that we would choose as we got older. So again, no formal 
religion at that time. So I had the privilege of attending a Salvation Army Girls Brigade kind of camp and loved for many years a little mirror that was given to me that on one side said that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And look on the other side to see someone that God so loved. And then you would flip it over and see that mirror. And that quote uh, from the Bible has always stuck with me. And so how did your spiritual journey lead you to the Baha'i faith? When I was growing up, I had loved the beauty that came from stories of the Spirit, from people serving others and striving to serve God and sought that out in books and in the people around me. As I grew more into the teenage years and into university age, I had the opportunity to be with people who came from many different religious backgrounds. And if I was invited to a mosque or to a Hindu ceremony, to a temple, I would go and I could always hear the word of God there. Everything I heard that was from the scriptures of other faiths sounded like that same voice. I was a Christian myself. I would attend whatever was the closest Christian church and was very nurtured by that. When I was in medical school, I was a member of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And some of the people in that organization had offered me the chance to go to a leadership convention for that organization. And I was happy to have that opportunity. However, some of the younger members of the group were not comfortable with me going. They felt I wasn't a true Christian because I had stated that I felt that other religions were good too. And they didn't feel that that was consistent with being a Christian. They felt I must believe that Christ was the only way. Whereas I heard that when Christ said he was the way, the truth and the life, I thought that was not necessarily commenting that others were not the way, the truth and the life. And later as I was exposed to the Baha'i faith, learned how this is Christ speaking as a divine teacher from God, as the, the Son of God giving that word. So when I was told not to come, so they, I do not think this was the thinking of the whole group, the whole organization, but certainly some people had expressed they didn't want me to go. And that made me think a lot. I did not feel that I was maybe appropriate for that organization anymore and was part of Students International Health Association. At that time, we were looking at how can we work even as students for the World Health Organization goal of health for all by the year 2000. And one of our learnings was we traveled as a small group to Guyana in South America, where we were learning from wonderful health practitioners who had very little in the way of monetary resources at that time. On the plane there, it turns out one of my fellow medical students was a Baha'i. And when she heard me you know, saying, I'm, I'm really questioning this. I love Christ, yet there must be a place for these people of other faiths because I hear that word of God in these other places of worship. And she said, oh, read about the Baha'i faith. I think you will find what you're looking for there. When I got to Guyana, I 
had the opportunity to go to churches and mosques and lovely places tended to be if you go to a church it might be at that time all European descended people or another church might be all people of East Indian descent or mosque might be all people of Indian descent and so on. When I went to a Baha'i gathering it really struck me because there were the diverse peoples of Guyana, Amerindians, people descended from Africans and from Indians and from Europeans all together. And what it struck me was a fulfillment of Christ's promise that he would bring all people into one fold. I thought I was witnessing that happening right there. So I believed I was a Baha'i then and read up about the faith. I found out more about it. Luckily, I had a very wonderful Baha'i teacher. I I didn't realize there was a Baha'i community back in my hometown of Edmonton. And uh, she kept following up with me and introduced me to the community. And that's now many years ago, over two decades ago. So I continue to learn and grow and try to put in practice Baha'u'llah's teachings. So I'm speaking with Tanya Nordley. She's a family physician and an assistant clinical professor in family medicine at the University of Alberta. Now, Tanya, you've been a family physician that has been treating patients afflicted by chronic pain. And I understand that you use diet as a way to help their condition. So can you describe for us what kind of chronic pain you've been able to alleviate through diet? Chronic pain, of course, can have many causes and many different solutions. It's very interesting that all sorts of chronic pain can be alleviated by diet interventions. Ones that I was almost embarrassed to share with my patients to find had been cured by techniques such as pain in a specific joint that had been injured many years ago. I never would have thought that would respond to a diet technique, but I couldn't deny that's what I was seeing happening in my practice. So perhaps I should back up a a little bit and talk about how I came to find some ways that seem helpful for patients. I had been working at a large psychiatric hospital and one known condition that can affect people people's health, mental and physical, is celiac disease, a reaction to a protein that's in wheat, rye and barley called gluten. So I had been testing all my patients uh, that I had the privilege to serve in a psychiatric hospital and got what I would have expected, roughly one in 75 people whose lab test was clearly in the then positive range for antitranscutaminase, the test for a test for celiac disease. And it was pretty clear your people's tests were on the whole positive or you weren't registering this antibody. I had changed my workplace a few years later to working in a chronic pain clinic. Also ran this test, the antitranscutaminase on all my patients who would agree to this test and found that I was getting At that time, what was considered positive was two units per milliliter, I believe. And I was getting lots of numbers like one, 
1.5. It was interesting to me. I hadn't seen that pattern in the psychiatric hospital. So there are many things that can make us think something is a cause of disease when it's not, or a cure when it's not, many biases. One of the more common ones is we've got a different population or a lab test that is being run by different people or a different machine that might be giving you different results. So I had called the lab and asked, is this the same lab that processed my samples before when I was working at the psychiatric hospital? Yes, same lab same equipment, same people. There hadn't been a change, yet I had a sudden change when my population switched to serving people with chronic pain over mental illness into getting these antitranscontaminases that were detectable, not necessarily positive by our lab's level. So I talked with some of my patients and said, I have a hunch that this is significant. And would you be willing to try going on a gluten-free diet. Well, I had some brave people who were willing. They said, hey, we'll try anything. I've been sick for years. You know, nothing's helped. Why not? You know, I can change my diet for a few months. What was fascinating is I had people who had, say, really badly fractured ankle many years ago and had developed chronic pain in their ankle. That pain would go away. And people coming to me, you know, saying they felt so much better, better than they'd ever felt. And being with people, spending time with them can make people feel better, can be the cause of alleviation of disease, because so much of disease is also how we experienced it. Yet, I was getting also marked functional changes or people swelling going away. They were walking further, very objective changes. Plus, these are people who tried many treatments with many wonderful caring practitioners and hadn't had this kind of relief. So it seemed to be working out that this was a significant lab result that led me to know that people are very likely to respond to a gluten-free diet. I found work of dietitian called Janice Joneja, J-O-N-E-J-A. Her books are excellent. A PhD immunologist who has many years as a registered dietitian treating allergy. And she developed a few foods diet of the foods that were least likely to cause allergy in people so that people could go on this diet, slowly increase the foods they were eating, until they found something that was triggering allergy symptoms. It's it's a way of finding out what, if any, is a culprit food resulting in symptoms in a given individual. And uh, I started to use this diet for people with chronic pain and found earlier on in my career, say 15 years ago or so, that roughly three in 10 people, they were responding to gluten. And if they went gluten-free, their symptoms would resolve. Two out of 10 would be dairy. The other five all over the map, mung beans and some, and myself, citrus is uh, quite individual. So this is something, again, when we're dealing with the immune system, we can't say that one food is predictably causing the same problems in many people, sound like a virus, which tends to give a, a specific constellation of symptoms, maybe some over others, but still the same general symptoms. When we talk about a food causing symptoms in people, well, 
uh, one food can make someone feel great. Another person might get headaches. Another person might get a rash from that same food. So this gave me a tool to find out if there was a food culprit and what it might be. Since that time, there's been a great shift over the last 10 years. There's been a shift. I really use that diet now because it's almost always in the North American context where I work, almost always gluten now. And I was wondering about this. Why the shift to people reacting to gluten? And I had looked for the answer in various places. And one of the uh, teachings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, is consultation is what we should use as a tool to find the truth. I consulted with a farmer. I said, has anything changed with wheat, rye or barley over the last several years? And this farmer said, "Mm, I think it's glyphosate. She said that we've been told that it's completely safe and doesn't hurt people in any ways and decays into benign substances in the soil. However, she said, I had my doubts, especially when around the time you describe seeing the shift in people reacting more and more to gluten, we were told to put glyphosate on our crops to dry out these grain products just before harvest. And I wondered about that and try and have things ripen at the same time to get a a higher yield. And she had also noticed the bugs dying in her fields. Uh, She felt this is also a sign that this wasn't healthy. I then found the work of Two lovely scientists, uh, Samsel and Senef, they have a series of articles called Glyphosate, Pathways to Modern Disease. And again, I find what they write, their observations match my clinical ones. So now, depending on what my patients want, as we discuss options, many will start with a gluten-free diet and doing their best to eat organic and non-genetically modified. So... Your initial question, dear Warren, was around what kinds of chronic pain. This can be anything from chronic headaches to very specific pain in specific body parts. It's more likely to be a food, however, at play, our body's abnormal reaction to a food when we get many other symptoms like tiredness, very stiff in the morning for a long time or signs like red palms, dark circles under the eyes, abnormal lab results. This is when I'm thinking more a autoimmune disease, more along the lines of a food likely to be causing it. And is glyphosate still allowed to be used on wheat products? Yes, and not just wheat. It's sprayed heavily and being now sold in other parts of the world. For example, being sprayed on uh, sugarcane crops to, again, ripen it, kill it so it's easier to cut. And we're starting to see illnesses in cane workers, uh, renal failure, for example. So I do believe that this is not the way to go, that we must find ways of making money and making food that are healthy for the people growing and harvesting it, for the people eating it, for the land. I'm not someone that, again, wants to necessarily campaign against one particular product, 
because if we have systems that are set up where science has been appropriated by materialism and people are willing to perhaps falsify results or not share results, if people are willing, for example, to poison people for profit, then even if we get one product to go, something else might take its place that might be equally harmful. What we need more is that change in thinking. And I certainly see many people doing this. I try and support the organic farmers as an organization called Young Agrarians. And I read their blog once. It sounded so humble. And they said, we don't know the best ways to produce food, but we want to try and find them. We want to consult with people. We want to see what are healthy ways. And we're going to make mistakes along the way, but we're going to keep trying. So I believe a lot of knowledge is being generated as we speak about how to farm in ways that are healthier for the people who eat the food as well as the people who we owe a great deal of gratitude to who are growing the food. So I'm speaking with Tanya Nordley. She is a family physician and an assistant clinical professor in family medicine at the University of Alberta. And she, for the over 20 years, she's been treating patients afflicted with chronic pain with the experience using diet change as one way of ameliorating their condition. Now, Tanya, have you run into a pain condition where you just struck out trying to cure it with diet? I would say that certainly diet is not the only way to treat chronic pain. Absolutely. I remember having a lovely patient that I was learning with. I thought she was reacting to a food. We put her on a few foods diet. She said, I feel worse and worse and worse. Now, usually people do feel worse at first. It can be a sign, something we call it serum sickness, a sign that we've eliminated the culprit antigen. The body's still making lots of antibodies or like bullets specific for it. And when we don't have that antigen there, the bullets kind of go into us more and people feel relatively worse. It can be a sign they're going to get better later. But for her, she was just getting worse and worse. And she told me, she says, I feel that I'm missing something. When we looked more into it, she was someone that had kept to quite a rigid diet before. And we came up with a plan. Well, I want you to go to a grocery store and every week choose something you've never seen before to eat. And, you know, I think she ate something like dragon fruit one week and looked up a recipe for it. And then she started to feel better and better. So, again, we never found a specific food that was bothering her, but we found she just needed more variety, maybe still in the realm of diet. I would say most people that I first see with pain that have been referred to me for pain, mostly it's a muscular problem. A muscle has got too tight and needs to be rubbed out. A wonderful website is doityourselfjointpainrelief.com with Gary Crowley. He has this lovely, humble voice. He gives many, many techniques for people to use to find and release that tight muscle. This is an excellent resource for patients. You don't need to buy anything. Any ads on that side are not from the side itself. So most pain I see especially early on, is this. Someone has a terrible knee pain. Well, they've probably got a too tight muscle in their calf or in the inner side or the outer side of their thigh that needs to be rubbed in one direction consistently until it releases and then the pain goes. 
challenge I find with that is most people today will end up getting an x-ray. And if they have uh, signs of wisdom like I do, they'll have what so-called arthritis on x-ray. Other than, of course, a bone break or you know, very rarely a cancer that you see on an x-ray, there is no correlation or matching up with symptoms and what you find on x-ray. So people can have no pain at all and lots of so-called arthritis or bone wrinkles, I call them. I like to point to my face, actually, and say, you know, I have wrinkles on my face and I do on my bones, too. And imagine how I would feel if someone told me I had degenerative face disease. I would feel terrible. But really, I know wrinkles are normal. They're a sign that I've got wisdom and I laugh a lot, (laughs) you know. So really, the so-called arthritis on bones is normal and is not the source of pain. But people are told it is, and they will go from people thinking uh, of themselves as relatively healthy people to thinking that what they have is incurable. And then it's very difficult for people to work on finding a tight muscle to relieve it, or often say knee pain is often people need to change their shoes, that their shoe isn't fitting quite right or is broken down and that's causing knee pain. It's very powerful to be told you have something wrong with your x-rays or be told that you have a degenerative disc disease, for example. Again, another normal finding, not really correlated with pain, found in people with no pain at all, or a so-called slip disc, a disc protrusion. Certainly, if there's very clear neurological signs, someone's dragging their foot, for example, yes, it can be because a nerve is being pressed on by a disc. But in at least 30% of completely healthy people with no pain, if we see do a a CT scan of the back or MRI, we will find these, what I like to call normal abnormalities. Mm. Or one very wise and skeptical orthopedic surgeon, he was seeing so many MRs, magnetic resonance images that were labeled as abnormal, he was really skeptical. And he had, with you know, consent, had a number of people, I think aged 18 to 80 from his hometown who were known active skiers with no pain. They had MRs of their hip and the radiologist, the x-ray doctor did not know the symptoms of the people he was reading the x-rays on for the study and found that 80% of them were read as abnormal. Hmm. So again, these are active, healthy skiers. So we have to be careful of how we interpret tests. I'm very grateful we have them, don't get me wrong, but we need to be careful to make sure we're not giving people an idea they've got something incurable. We want to be giving them hope. So I will tend to look at x-rays with people and say, oh, how wonderful. (laughs) There is no fracture, no cancer. Let's get on with just working on getting this pain better. Mm. So a lovely resource that people might want to look up is anything by Dr. John Sarno. He does a lot of work on mind-body medicine and a common cause of at least part of our pain for all of us is something called somatizing. Well, our brain can give us pain almost to distract us from other worries. It's been described by ancient physicians. It's very real pain. It doesn't mean people are faking it in any way. And uh, a resource would be an old 2020 episode, I think from the 1990s with Barbara Walters, I believe available on YouTube. And it's a, 
2020 episode on back pain with Dr. Johnny Sano. And it's a lovely humorous look and kind look at how pain can be caused by this phenomenon that's known as somatizing. So it's worthwhile knowing about that. It needs to be gently brought up because many people suffering from very real pain are concerned that others think they're faking it. And a story I bring up from early in my career is a lovely young man who was dying of a cancer that made his belly very big with fluid in the abdominal cavity that we call ascites. The liver kind of gives it off if the liver has some cancer in it. This fluid comes off and it's not particularly painful, but it can be uncomfortable. We can drain off that fluid so people are more comfortable. For some of my female patients, we talk about how this can be like the advanced stages of pregnancy. You know, that belly gets big and it's a little harder to breathe and it can be uncomfortable. So I had this young man and I believe I was a resident at the time and was on the team treating him. And this young man had terrible pain that wasn't typical of his type of cancer. And this was a man who had a strong faith, knew that life did not end when his body ended, that his soul would be going on. He had young children, had come to be at peace with him not being around as a father, knowing his loving creator would take care of them as well as his his wonderful wife. I'm not saying it was easy for him to be dying, but this was a man... I would say extremely psychologically and spiritually healthy. I remember him being asked, is there anything you're worried about that you know we might not be thinking of? And it turned out this man was a pipe fitter and he was so concerned that he might explode when his children were there. He couldn't even enjoy his children's visit. He thought it might scar them for life. You know, as medical people, we hadn't anticipated that fear. You know, of course, pipes explode under too much pressure, but people don't explode with the ascites. We're able to say, no, no, that never happens. All of a sudden, his pain went away to almost nothing. So this is the story I used to show the power of somatizing. This man was not faking it. And indeed, he had a very serious underlying condition and he did die not long afterwards. Yet still the pain was mostly somatizing. So the more we can bring hope and joy to patients and talk about the possibility of healing, even if the body won't be healed, there can always be emotional healing, spiritual healing, healing of family relationships. Healing is always possible. And we need to know how to help our patients develop and or keep their hope to help with pain. So I'm speaking with Tanya Nordley, who's a family physician and an assistant clinical professor in family medicine at the University of Alberta. And we're talking about how for over 20 years she has been treating patients afflicted by chronic pain using diet change as a way to ameliorate their condition. Now, Tanya, you also treat addiction control, I guess is the way you phrase it. Do you use similar approaches for this kind of ailment as well? In some ways, I would say an overarching approach that I find helpful is a solutions-focused approach. So in this model, we do identify what the problem is, 
what the patient's goals are. And we spend less time talking about the problem and more time talking about when the problem is less, not there, or bothers the person less as a way of finding treatments, cures, solutions. So, for example, if someone has a challenge using addictive substances, I don't ask really about what they use, how much they use, etc. I ask, well, when do you not use? When were you last clean and sober? What's different about those times? Or with pain, I really want to know when you don't have pain or when it's less or doesn't bother you. Oh, it bothers you less when you're engaged in a hobby, when you exercise, when you, you have a time of peace with your spouse. Let's work on those things. It gives us clues for cures or sometimes, say, with pain, someone's pain has gone away when they visited an aunt and that aunt lives in a warm country. They think it's the warmth, but often we find the diet was different. Maybe they couldn't have coffee at that aunt's. Maybe coffee is actually the problem. It's just looking more for solutions. It's much more fruitful than examining for when things are worse. A couple that might come in or even just one person in the couple worried about the fights they're having with a spouse. Don't ask about the fights. You ask, what ends the fights? When were you last getting along? What was different? Oh, when you went dancing every week. It's time to go dancing every week, whether you feel like it or not. Fastest way to change a feeling is to take an action. So likewise with addiction, I really like to know what people care about, who they love, what are their strengths, what are their good qualities. And they often find it hard to tell me. They can feel very bad about themselves. We talk about, well, if you don't already have a purpose of life to tell me, I want to know what they think is a purpose of life. Some say, I don't know. So can we choose one for now? What do you relate to? Do you relate to developing your virtues as a purpose in life? Do you relate more to service to humanity or advancing civilization or knowing and worshipping God? What do you relate to? And people will pick that and then we'll say, well, when are you showing this more? What advances you towards that goal? So I like a term that I call excellence induction. So a lot of the focus uh, these days is on something called harm reduction. And certainly some of those techniques I see as well within excellence induction. Sure, I love people to use clean nerdies instead of dirty needles. Or, you know, if they go from drinking every day to six days a week, that's excellence. I think this is wonderful. I think we need to be careful with our words, though. Harm reduction, to me, suggests to people that the most they can ever hope to be is less harmful. And this is in defiance of our true nature. We're created noble. We are wonderfully made. And my understanding of the resilience literature, looking at people who come from very difficult environments and don't develop addictions, is being around high-minded people who show a different way that inspires people to be different. If you look at analysis of studies about programs that help youth, for example, you'll find all sorts of different programs can help various philosophies as long as youth are exposed to high-minded people that believe in them and have high expectations of their behavior and their service to humanity. So for me, I look at this 
excellence induction model. And I'm always thinking, well, what is the patient's goal? We need to know that always. And what will get them to the next level? How can we encourage people and look at them knowing themselves better, what brings them down to avoid those things, places or people, what brings them up, do more of that. So some of my main tools for addiction control are actually meeting with anyone that the patient loves and is willing to meet with me and the patient's willing. And we talk about that their actions can help create an environment that can help the person they love with addictions. I'm sorry, Warren, I think you had an question. Yeah, it's very interesting because it appears that the diagnostic approach for chronic pain is very different from the diagnostic approach for addiction control. And the diagnostic approach for addiction control is very psychologically oriented in really assessing the person's lifestyle and goals in life and aspirations and and so on as you describe them, which is very different from the work that you described when addressing chronic pain through diet. Yes, in in those aspects, yet it's still important for chronic pain too. And again, depending what's the underlying challenge or, or diagnosis. So with chronic pain, uh, many people's chronic pain that I see is induced by addictive substances. You know, I have my what is it certification in addiction medicine and that. I actually don't even use the term addiction that much. Again, I believe a lot of our science has been appropriated by materialism. And there's a lot of pressure to look for, say, and, and blame the person with the addiction, whereas really so many patterns are really environmental. I'm not saying there's not choices. It's very important that people remember they have choices. Yet, I prefer the focus to be on the substance is addictive. The definition I most like of an addictive substance, I'm sure it's not original, though I'm not sure the source, is that addictive substance is that which is not safe at any level and which stimulates the reward pathways. So really, when we look at all the addictive substances, alcohol, cigarettes, marijuana, cocaine, there's really no safe level of any of them. Certainly, the World Health Organization has put out a statement, I believe, 2012, that there's no safe level of alcohol. That is a class one carcinogen. There's no safe level of cigarettes. Perhaps there's not broad statements on the other addictive substances yet, But if they're looked at honestly, those will come. The difference between some other substances, for example, there are other substances that we know of no safe level, such as lead, yet people are unlikely to go and seek them because it's not pleasurable. The challenge with addictive substances is this, they're extremely lucrative. Once you have someone hooked on these substances, they're unlikely to complain about the physician prescribing it because dead people don't complain and people getting what they want don't complain. I say want at some level, right? They might be seeing there's lots of harm in their lives, but it's really tough to stop these things. So we get this huge explosion of addiction whenever addictive substance 
is medicalized. So we saw that happen starting, I believe, in the 1990s, a campaign to get doctors to prescribe opioids more liberally, which has led to now in North America, the number one cause of death for adults 18 to 65 is opioid overdose. This is created by lack of ethics in the medical profession. So Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, had written that the most important things in universities to be taught is actually ethics and a good character, that physicians of evil character can cause the death of thousands of people. And I believe we're seeing that now. Of course, many wonderful ethical physicians, don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. but we must not take money from places that cause us to promote products that are harmful to people. Indeed, I remember in the 1990s getting ads to come to free talks to hear about how opioids are safe, non-addictive, good for pain, none of which is true. And indeed, the company that promoted that was fined $637 million or so dollars in, I believe, 2012. I'm forgetting the year. But that year, they made several billion dollars on that opioid product. Recently, I started to get adverts to go to free meals where I would hear about how basically hashish products, uh, cannabis products are safe, non-addictive, good for pain. I thought, oh, that sounds like the same campaign of, you know, that company in the 1990s. And I did a quick three words internet search. I used the keywords executive marijuana oxy codone and found out that is indeed the same executive who's now moved to Canada and who has interest in a cannabis plant. So I'm seeing the shift of advertising to a new addictive substance. Interesting enough, these substances cause pain. A lot of overlap between addiction and chronic pain is to become pain-free, people must over time stop all addictive substances and particularly cannabis causes chronic pain. I'm even seeing marketing shifting now in medical journals. I was thinking, oh, you know, I bet next it will be stimulants like methamphetamine or cocaine promoted for pain or addiction treatment. And indeed, I saw a journal article where doctors were being encouraged to prescribe amphetamines for people addicted to cocaine. Tanya, so, let me follow up. Excuse me, let me follow up on that on what you were saying just a moment ago. There's a lot of prescription now for medical marijuana for chronic pain, and in fact, my wife's cousin had a bone marrow treatment where they injected bone marrow into her so that it actually was going through her bones, and it's very very painful. And near the end, someone suggested that she take marijuana to alleviate the pain and she actually found that it did it it alleviated that pain i hear you and i'm so it was a very difficult time let's step back a bit about how addictive substances hit the reward pathways of the brain so studies showing that addictive substances make you feel better they absolutely do it will work but what's the long-term cost so is there a place for a short-term treatment Perhaps. I've never found 
any of the cannabinoids useful. And indeed, just one dose can induce mental illness. It's a pretty tricky drug. So when I was a resident, this is now 30 years ago, we did have THC in the pill form. It was hardly ever used because of the unacceptable risk profile. Lots of psychiatric effects. And other medicines work better. It's just interesting to me that people jump to using these addictive substances. Are there places for them? Again, I, I'm hard-pressed to find any use for any cannabinoid. Not never say never, you know. Opioids, absolutely, they're essential drugs for operations. But they need to be stopped quickly. So pain is treated by so many things. We, we talked about the gentleman who had the cancer giving him ascites. He had terrible pain. He wasn't offered an addictive drug. He was offered something that was a solution for him. So fear, worry greatly increases pain. I often have patients, they don't have much pain with things that other people say are terribly painful. I just had a relative with a pancreatic cancer. He had no pain at all. He wanted to go home. We found a way that that could happen. He didn't have pain. And yet this is considered a very painful cancer. So certainly if we suggest to people they're going to have terrible pain, we will induce fear. This will cause a lot of pain. Interesting hospital studies show that all pain, cancer pain, chronic pain, muscular pain, short-term trauma pain is affected with about 30% relief from teaching people deep breathing techniques and simple messages such as this too will pass and I can handle whatever comes my way. Can we get better at that? So with all respect, it sounds like your relative was going through such a tough time. The more we physicians learn other ways to control pain, the less likely we are to jump to addictive drugs. As I tell my patients who come in often on high, high doses of addictive drugs, they'll say, well, you know, what was that doctor doing that put me on these? Often when a number of months later, they're off all of those drugs are much better. And so really those physicians, they wanted to help you with your pain and you wanted to get better from your pain. Yet we have to look at the evidence that that's not what happened and try something else. So I've been speaking with Tanya Nordley who's a family physician and assistant clinical professor in family medicine at the University of Alberta. And she has been talking about how she diagnoses and treats pain and addiction in a unique way, a combination of diet and understanding what people are going through and what their worries may be. So Tanya, you've been practicing for over 20 years, and I imagine you've seen your methods evolve over the years. Do you see this evolution continuing as you move into the future and in what ways? Oh, absolutely. So I hope to continue and grow in a humble attitude of learning. There's so much to learn from so many different people. I want to get better at reading the realities of a community. What influences are there in the community that are affecting people's health? What are the strengths there, the capacities that we can draw on to increase people's health? We need to look 
at the individual, yes, but also at the environment because the individual's hopes and goals and actions affect the environment and the environment affects the individual. So for lasting change, we need to affect both. I am privileged to take part in something called an institute process, the Baha'i faith and indeed wonderful indigenous communities in South America have developed these courses called the Ruhi Institute through a process of much consultation, love, trial and error and growth to see what helps communities, what makes them better, drawing on the wisdom contained in the Baha'i faith and the Baha'i writings and people of all backgrounds are invited to come and share and help learn about what this means to bring their beautiful faith and other backgrounds and knowledge. One of the most recent books is on social and economic development. So much of health lies beyond the people and practices of healthcare. It lies in agriculture, in education, in sanitation, and so on. So I highly encourage people to start with this process, this institute process. You might know someone that's running a study circle. It starts with book one, which is Reflections on the Life of the Spirit. And through this process, we develop capacity and we learn together, we consult, we reflect, we take actions, we reflect again what worked, what do we want to do more of, what didn't work, what do we want to leave behind. And I think in this process, we continually find new sources of human happiness, new treatments, new ways to prevent problems. We also are better able to learn and draw on the wisdom of the past. So I hope to continue to learn from my colleagues and others and my patients as we go forward together as a society where everyone is a protagonist, everyone is an agent of change in this beautiful world of ours. So Tanya, thank you so much for taking this hour to tell us about your work in the area of chronic pain and addiction and Godspeed in your work ahead. Thank you. Thank you kindly. I wish you a good day. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tanya Nordley, a family physician and an assistant clinical professor in family medicine at the University of Alberta. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Grip. Don't let them see you like this. I say I'm ashamed of mankind. 
But I walk a thin line, so I slip If something's in the way, yeah, I'm known to trip It's more than I can take All eyes on me, and it's more than I can fake But at the end of the day, man, all that I can say is My prayers to the most great When I'm down for the count And it's too deep when I live day to day Start to lose sleep when I don't go to class When I don't call fam back How long can I do this? How long will I last? I don't know, God, I don't know If I am even worthy of your grace anymore I'm waiting for a sign But everything is the sign In reality, the world is already mine I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name Oh my God Make my prayer a fire to burn away all my veils. Make of my prayer a fire, a fire. Kindling my pains, a fire, a fire. My God, my adored one, my king, my desire. I know that God gave each a purpose But we all gotta search way beneath the surface To find it, like trying to unearth a diamond That always appears with the most perfect timing So I start reading to find meaning And I see there is still something I am not seeing In between the lines, in my spirit, in the music In the very air that I'm breathing It's the reason I feel forced to write I recognize it inside me, that source of light Showing me that there is so much more to life Arming me with the fire Because I got wars to fight I think about the breakers of the dawn And how they stood firm when the guns were drawn On the front lines, far from pawns Kings in their own right They're the ones who I call upon Whenever I lose faith I read the story of my name And realize it's never too late to believe And so shall my powers be I believed and he made a man out of me I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name, oh my God, make my prayer a fire to burn away all my veils. Make of my prayer a fire, a fire, kindling my veins, a fire, a fire. My God, my adored one, my king, my desire. Now when the swords flash, go full. When the shafts fly, press on. Now when the swords flash, go full. When the shafts fly, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on. Dominion 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.